Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. If perception is governed by past experience, so is imagination, because it's using exactly the same circuits in the brain. And imagination, then, is also subject to past experience. Now, it turns out the best way to get out of these efficiency traps is novelty. Hi, and thanks for joining us this weekend for Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio with Gabe from Q Ideas. You often hear the phrase in this show about staying curious, thinking well, and advancing good. And we're going to hone in on that thinking well aspect today. But before we do, Gabe, it's good to have you back, especially as we want to hear more about something new at Q Ideas that you introduced at the Q Conference back in April and is now live, a new platform that we briefly introduced last week called Q Media. Tell us about it. After 15 years of curating talks, of commissioning research, of analyzing our current context and trying to bring the best thinking, the best talks, the best interviews, the best content to thoughtful Christian leaders, we're now excited to launch our new platform, Q Media. No longer is Q just an event, but now Q can show up with you on your handheld device, on your laptop, on the TV screen, in your living room, or in your office workplace. And by having this content available, Our goal is to equip you to lead better conversation right where you've been called. We'll do the hard work and the heavy lifting of giving you the best talks, the best thinking, the thoughtful approaches to some of these difficult issues. And we're asking you to consider who can you bring around the table? Who can you invite into the conversation? Whether it's someone in your workplace or in your home, how can you be a leader that's creating thoughtful dialogue around conversations people want to have but don't always know where to start? Now, on the Q Media platform, there's a variety of ways you can do this. Of course, we're going to have hundreds of talks available to you, each that come with three questions meant to start a real conversation with whomever you've gathered together. But in addition to that, we're curating films and documentaries, series that allow you to go deeper with a particular artist or a thoughtful person who's been inspired to think well about culture. We also have designed courses that allow you to go deeper into a theological framework, a philosophical framework, of how to think well about being a Christian in today's culture. We've curated podcast series and we'll be hosting live events on this platform that give you access to content right when it's happening from leaders that you care about and want to hear from. Instead of being overwhelmed by all the information that's coming in, all the data, all of the research, all of the content providers that are overwhelming us with information, Q wants to be the trusted source for you to curate the best content, the best ideas, the best thinking on how a Christian can be faithful to the historic truths of Scripture, but also loving and kind and smart and informed as we try to engage the difficult conversations that lie ahead for Christians engaging today's culture. 
All right, now, if you'd like to learn more or subscribe, visit the redesigned QIdeas website, qideas.org, and then click on the menu button in the upper right-hand corner, and then click on Media. As we get to today's show, let me ask you a question. Ever get the feeling that our conversations, whether they're about major cultural issues or just regular conversations, are stuck in a rut? Uh, Do you ever get that feeling you're using certain words that you you use them, but they don't seem to carry the same impact with others? For example, the word gospel. Interestingly, one time Scott McKnight was talking on the Q stage and brought up that very issue. question was a simple one. Theo, since he had just returned from the United States, what do you think of America? Uh, I've learned you don't ask South Africans questions like this, but he said this. It struck me. It's all the same. Everywhere we went, it was all the same. Miami, Dallas, Seattle, Chicago, Detroit. Same restaurants, Same clothing, same grocery stores, same hats, and what irritated him the most, the same wines. None of which were from South Africa. The media, he said, the advertisers have taken over and they've made every place the same place. And when everywhere becomes the same place, things happen. When everywhere becomes nowhere, every place becomes no place. And when no place becomes every place, every sacred sacred place becomes a no place. And as he said this, as we were talking in the car, I lost all contact with what he was saying about Cape Town and Stellenbosch And I began to think about a lecture that I was giving at the University of Stellenbosch on the gospel. I believe that words have encountered the same thing that Theo encountered in the United States. When all words mean the same thing, no words mean anything. When the gospel, which is the favorite word for people to use today, means everything, it loses all meaning. Gabe, there's no doubt that as words get used, they can lose their meaning or sometimes even get co-opted. And that can be hard because what the church has to offer is very message-driven. So I think today's talk might help us break through in getting our message across. So can you tell us about it? I hope you're ready for the talk you're going to hear. It's 18 minutes. It's going to be so worth your time. You're going to want to hear every minute of it. But it's a discussion on this topic called Iconoclast thinking. It's by Gregory Burns, who's a PhD and the Distinguished Professor of Neuroeconomics at Emory University. He directs the Center for Neuropolicy and Facility for Education and Research in Neuroscience. It's kind of a fancy way of saying he really understands our brains, how we're wired, how we're designed, and how we actually can think in ways that help us expand our imagination, help us see new ways of connecting people, see new ways of connecting ideas and building things. You know, part of our mission at Q is not just to be curious, that's part of it, stay curious, but also to think well. 
Well, today's podcast is going to help you understand how your brain works, how you're designed and wired to think. And I think it's going to encourage you. With no further ado, let's listen into Gregory Burns on Iconoclast Thinking. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I'm actually really gratified uh, by Gabe asking me to come here because frequently all I do is talk to other scientists. So I really enjoy these opportunities to tell you about what I do as a scientist. Now, I'm a neuroeconomist, and I'll tell you in a minute what that means, but in a nutshell, it means that I use neuroscience methods, specifically brain imaging, to try to decode how the brain makes decisions. And what I'd like to tell you is that there's a revolution going on in terms of neuroscience in what we understand about the brain. And in fact, we're getting to the point where we can predict how the brain makes decisions. Now, the type of decision I'd like to talk about right now is about the iconoclastic brain. Now, an iconoclast, strictly by definition, means someone who tears down icons, who tears down conventional ways of thinking. First iconoclast, by most scholars' opinions, was Leo III, emperor of Constantinople, when he ordered the golden icon of Christ torn down from the palace gates. I'm not going to go into the history of that, but suffice it to say that the sergeant of the army who was ordered to do that was killed. <laughs> what, but actually what I want to talk about right now is the fact that thinking differently, thinking innovatively, is very hard to do. And neuroscience is telling us a bit about why it's so hard to do. And the punchline is that our brains are not evolved to do it. And I'll tell you why. But first, an exercise. I'd like everyone just to take a few moments to think about a sunset. Imagine a sunset. Just close your eyes for a minute and think of a sunset. Okay. I think it doesn't take a lot of effort to do that. Is this about what you thought of? Did anyone think of this sunset? It looks similar, but it's actually a sunset on Mars, taken from the Mars rover. Now, I tasked you with a very simple creative task. Just think of a sunset. And the problem is, is that we all tend to default into the Hollywood picture of a sunset. The picture I showed you was the sun setting over an ocean, which probably means Pacific Ocean, probably means it came from Hollywood. And this is, in fact, what we typically do. Why do we think this way? Why do we tend to fall into these same kind of creative traps? And the answer is, is it's because that's how our brains evolved. So let me tell you about the methods that we use to try to decode how the brain works. And this is where neuroeconomics comes in. This is actually the first diagram, first picture of what I would consider a neuroeconomics experiment, or just a simple neuroscience experiment. It was drawn about 1850 by an Italian physiologist named Angelo Masso. Now, Masso's main field of research was measuring blood pressure. And in fact, he invented the first blood pressure device, which you see drawn in this picture. It was very crude, but it worked. It was basically two jars with fluid filled in it. And most of the time, he went around measuring people's blood pressure in their arms. Except in this picture, you see his device attached to someone's head. And this was done more or less on a whim. He decided to see if he could me measure blood pressure in the brain. Now, the subject is not your typical subject. He was actually a stonemason who had suffered a skull fracture but lived. But he always had this defect in his skull, so it provided a window onto the brain. And what Maso observed was when he put his device 
on this window into the brain, he could measure blood pressure in the brain. And it changed. And the way it changed depended on what his subject was thinking about, amazingly enough. You can tell by the placement of the probe that's over the frontal lobes. And he observed that when his subject was thinking about things that required a lot of attention, the blood pressure increased. And so this is the basic idea behind our technology now, that when parts of the brain function, when they work hard, they require more blood flow. And we can pick that up. Nowadays, we use more modern technology. We use an MRI machine. But it's still basically the idea that the brain is like a muscle on a very small scale. Parts that are working harder need more blood. Okay, that's the technology. So now I want to talk about innovation. And there are, in fact, three circuits in the brain that tend to sabotage innovative thinking. Perception, fear, and social intelligence. So let's talk about perception. Perception, and I'm going to talk about visual perception specifically, because we are such visual creatures. Perception is the process that the brain does that takes physical inputs, in this case, photons hitting a retina, and converts it into something that we become consciously aware of. It has its beginnings in physical reality, but ultimately, it's something that's constructed in the brain and the mind. And to prove that, Look at this picture. This is actually a very famous optical illusion. Does everyone see a white triangle floating above the background? In fact, there is no triangle there. There's no lines defining a triangle. But your brain constructs that perception. But there are other ways to perceive this figure as well. You may see a Star of David. Or if you're of a certain age, like me, you may see Pac-Man. When I, when I show this slide to my undergraduates, they oftentimes cannot see Pac-Man. <laughs> Sometimes you can't help it. But this makes a critical point about perception, because the physical reality of this is just in the photons coming off the screen. We're all looking at the same thing. The physical reality is the same but our minds may construct a different perception of it depending on your past experience. If you've never played an Atari game, you cannot see Pac-Man. And this tells us something very important about perception, that it begins with physical reality, but that is just the beginning. The rest of it is constructed in our brain. How does it do that? So here's the quick neuroscience lesson about perception. The first visual part of the brain is actually in the back of the head. And from there, the information flows over two broad pathways, one going over the top of the brain and one going underneath the brain. And the information process that goes in these streams is quite different. The upper pathway encodes where things are in space. So as you look around this room or as you're driving down the highway, your brain is very quickly taking a snapshot of where everything is, and then it stops processing it unless something changes. And the reason it does this is because the brain has to work on only about 40 watts of power. That's a dim light bulb. <laughs> so there's a partial truth to the myth that you only use 10 or 15% of your brain. It's more of a multitasking issue because the brain only has enough power to turn on about 10 or 15% at any given moment. So it has to decide which parts to divert blood flow and energy to, which is a good thing because 
if you were walking down the street and you had to continually process where everything is, you wouldn't have any energy left to do anything else. So the dominant principle about how the brain works is governed by efficiency because there's an energy constraint. So back to perception. One function is to tag where everything is in space, and then the other pathway, the what pathway, tags what the brain is seeing. And the first consideration that the brain makes is whether it's looking at a person or something else. There's tremendous amount of real estate in the brain devoted to human faces. And this is actually one of the reasons why it's so hard to innovate. So getting back to our sunset experiment. Until a couple of years ago, imagination was thought to reside primarily in the frontal parts of the brain because these are the most highly evolved in humans and differentiates us from other species. But about two years ago, there was a very interesting brain imaging experiment done where they had people do exactly the type of task that you just did with the sunset, except they were in an MRI machine. And the dominant activity that was observed was not so much in the frontal parts of the brain, but in the perceptual parts of the brain. So when you close your eyes and imagine a sunset, it's not like you have a part of your brain, a module that's devoted to imagination, but in fact, the brain utilizes the same circuits for perception. It's as if your brain simulates a visual scene by using exactly the same parts that it would as if it was actually looking at a sunset. Now, this is really, this strikes me as really an incredible finding. And it tells us about the efficiency principle of the brain, but it also explains why it's so difficult to imagine things that are different. Because if perception is governed by past experience, think Pac-Man, so is imagination. Because it's using exactly the same circuits in the brain. And imagination, then, is also subject to past experience. Now, it turns out the best way to get out of these efficiency traps is novelty. Have you ever had the experience of going to a place completely novel, never having been there, and you see it really truly for what it is. It's like meeting a person for the first time. First impressions without any past expectations let you see something for its true nature. Same thing with perception. You need novelty. Same thing for imagination. You need novelty. Now there's a problem here, and that's fear. We're afraid of novelty. We actually know a lot about the neuroscience of fear. There's a different structure in the brain called the amygdala. It's buried deep in the brain. It's a very primitive part of the brain. And it also has direct connections to the visual system. And when it sees things that it's not seen before, it has a main line to the amygdala, which then sets off the arousal system of the body, which means that heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, and kind of all the unpleasant things associated with being scared. Now, the amygdala is sensitive to all things that people are scared of, spiders and monsters, It's also sensitive to things that we would say are pleasantly arousing. So it's more properly termed an arousal center. Arousal is just a physiological state of, like I described, high blood pressure. The problem is, is when the amygdala is active, it tends to shut down other types of thinking. I love this quote by Martin Luther King. He says, The soft-minded man always fears change. He feels security in the status quo, and he has an almost morbid fear of the new. For him, the greatest pain is the pain of a new idea. 
And this hits the nail on the head when it comes to novelty. We are afraid of things that are different, and it tends to shut down creative thinking. What are other fears? Apart from novelty, we're afraid of looking stupid. Who has the courage to stand up against the crowd? Why do we even have that fear? In fact, I think there's really only one fear that we have. And this is it. It's the fear of being alone. We are fundamentally social creatures. We evolved in social groups, and it is perhaps the most important thing to us. In fact, there are really only two requirements of any animal on this planet. You have to survive, and you have to reproduce. And if you do not belong to a community, you can't do either. And for this reason, the fear of being alone is so deeply embedded in our brains that it will often sabotage creative thought because creative thought is fundamentally being different and it runs the risk of being excluded from the community. This is a very graphic demonstration of this. This was an experiment done in the 50s. It was a perception experiment. The task was simple. All you had to do was pick which of those three line segments on the right matches the one on the left. The kicker was that the subject was brought into a room and there were about a dozen people seated in the room, all of whom were plants by the experimenter and told to give the wrong answer. So they would go around the room, and they would all say, C, C, C. And then they would get to the only real subject and measure how often he would go along. Surprisingly, about a third of the subjects would go along with the group. Now, mind you, this experiment was done at an Ivy League college, and so... The experimenters were surprised because these were, after all, future politicians and future leaders of finance. (laughs) We resurrected this experiment about five years ago with brain imaging to try to understand what goes on in the brain when this happens. What you see here is a graphic representation. The orange areas in the brain represent the parts of the brain that were active during the visual perception task. Exactly the same areas I showed you in the diagram a few moments ago. You see an upper pathway for where and a lower pathway for what. The blue areas are the areas that change when the person conforms to the group and the group is wrong. Now, originally, we thought we would see activity in the frontal lobes, as if the brain knew what it was seeing but chose to ignore it. Not so. In fact, we saw activity changing in the perception regions, exactly the same parts of the brain that were doing the task. The implication is is that when enough people tell you something about what you're seeing, it changes how you see things. Now, you may wonder what happens when you stand up for your own opinion. In this cutaway you see coming around, there's only one small blue spot right there, and that's in the amygdala, representing the fear of being different. So that brings us to social intelligence. Even if you have the greatest idea in the world, you run up against the fact that it's going to be different to most people. There's a couple of things I'd like to highlight because this is a very rapidly evolving area of neuroscience. We have large amounts of real estate dedicated to how the brain processes faces. The one on the left shows you that we have parts of the perceptual system dedicated to processing where other people are looking. Humans have the most white in their eyes of any primate, and we think that's because it lets you gauge very precisely where people are looking. 
You can tell if someone is looking in your eyes or whether they're looking at your ear or over your shoulder. You see on the right an amygdala responding to expressions of fear in someone else, as if we simulate those in our own brains. So what can you do about this? Well, in terms of perception, I've mentioned the fact that novelty is key because it lets you see things for what they truly are. But it spills over to imagination. Traveling, meeting new people, all prevent the brain from falling into an efficiency mode. Fear. You can't eliminate fear. You need to have courage, and that's different. If you're a manager, you have to recognize that fear is damaging to creativity in the workplace. Recognize the fact that our greatest fears are socially based. Roughly 30 to 50% of the population's greatest fear is the fear of public speaking. But fortunately, these can all be neutralized. Training, exposure, habituation, all are very effective. Just practice can neutralize fear. It's perhaps the easiest of these roadblocks to eliminate. And then finally... Social intelligence. In addition to processing faces, our brains are also exquisitely tuned to issues of fairness. And we're very sensitive to inequities in the world. We don't like it. We realize that it's how things are. But the golden rule is essentially embedded in our brains. We assume that we will meet people again. And it's a pretty good assumption. Familiarity. The brain likes familiarity. And then finally... Social intelligence, not everyone has it, not everyone can get it, but you can always get a partner. So, thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to Gregory Burns describe this. I know for me, it's just inspiring to hear this, to be reminded of just how uniquely we're wired, but also how do we get out of some of these just conventional ways of doing things and thinking? I think for many of you, I know you travel. I know that's part of your life. He talks about that, right? That, that when you meet new people, when you take walks, you know, all these things that you can do actually stimulate our creativity and are really part of just these healthy rhythms of how we can live our lives, how we can create better culture within our organizations, within our churches, within our businesses that we're creating. Uh, and I hope it encourages you today. Well, as you head into this next week, I just hope that this inspires you to go take a long walk, enjoy conversation with friends, and and really pray that God gives you new inspiration, new ways of helping you see the world, see your opportunity in the world, see new creative ways that He wants to address problems, to renew things, to restore things that are broken. And that'll be our prayer for you as you head into the week. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.